0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Crossroad, our study in the book of John, with a message entitled, Persecuting Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to John 9, 18-25, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I've often spoken with people who are Well, they're confused about this matter of the persecution of Christians. I mean, why would anyone persecute Christians? I mean, after all, if they're obedient and faithful Christians, well, they're called to submit to the governing authorities, they're called to love their enemies, they're called to do good to all. I mean, yes, we do seek to evangelize everywhere we go, and we don't agree with a great many of the values of almost any culture, but we are taught to live peaceful and quiet lives, seeking to bless and not to curse. I mean, why would anyone persecute that? Now, it is true that in some cases, people who call themselves Christians have indeed become persecutors. You know, I've got a memory about this. It's, it's a number of years ago now, the church I was serving. We were housing refugees from that horrible war following the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. We picked up some Bosnian refugees from the airport and We were transporting them to our church building, where we would hand out clothing, and then there we would connect people together with sponsoring families. Well, these were Muslim refugees, and they had survived a slaughter from the Serbs. These Serbs had called themselves Christians. And when the group, that is, our church people and the refugees pulled up in the parking lot, the Bosnian refugees saw the cross on our building. And some of them cried out in fear because they were afraid of the cross and they believed that we had brought them there to kill them. And eventually what ensued was a great deal of confusion. I mean, how could we who showed love to them have the same symbol as those butchers back home? And that was to them inexplicable. And I say this only to acknowledge that in history, there have been false and deceiving Christians, people who do great evil and they masquerade as Christians. They don't know Christ, but they insist on using his name. Now, in truth, genuine followers of Jesus never persecute others. Indeed, listen as Peter describes the ministry of Jesus. He's describing it to a group of Gentiles gathered in the house of a Roman centurion. So I'm reading Acts 10, 37 to 38. Peter is speaking. He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Well, doing good, healing, driving out demons. He was good and not evil. He was not a persecutor, he was full of grace and mercy. I mean, who could oppose such a thing? And yet as we know, Jesus himself predicted that not only he, but his true followers would be persecuted. So listen to his words in John 16, verse 2. He said, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Look, this is called spiritual warfare. The great unseen enemy, Satan himself, incites a cruel warfare against Jesus and his followers. And this is his unbridled hatred of Jesus. It's spiritual warfare. Now, we've been studying John chapter 9. This is one chapter in our Bible dedicated to a single miracle, which Jesus did. It's it's the healing of a man who had been born blind, and now he's able to see. But please notice that he's done this miracle both in Jerusalem and on the Sabbath. Let's take it one step at a time. According to the oral tradition of the Jewish religious teachers, Jesus had broken the fourth command for three reasons. One, according to them, healing was forbidden on the Sabbath, except in the case of an immediate threat to one's life. Secondly, it was illegal to knead bread on the Sabbath, and Jesus making mud from his spit was roughly equivalent to kneading bread. And three, many thought it was work to anoint someone on the Sabbath. And to be fair, Jesus never broke the Old Testament law of Sabbath. But he did break the traditions, the oral traditions that, in his words, laid burdens on people that were too heavy to carry. Sabbath should have been a day of rest. And what better way to rest could there have been than the rest from a lifetime of blindness? I mean, if healing is done on the Sabbath, well then, is not that what Sabbath intended. It is rest that God wants for his people. And so Jesus rightly saw if there was anyone who was breaking Sabbath, it was the religious teachers. Rather than giving people rest, Sabbath had become a burden and not a joy. And so you can see this was clearly a flashpoint of controversy, Sabbath healing. But please also notice this miracle was done in Jerusalem. I have in the past said that in Israel at the time of Jesus, there was a huge difference between Galilee and Judea. Galilee, which was in the northern part of Israel, was made up of farmers and fishermen. They were blue-collar workers who would have been thought by the elites to have been undereducated, a mass of superstition. That's how the Judeans thought about the Galileans. They were beneath their dignity. Now Judea, on the other hand, well, that's where Jerusalem was, and this was the place of scholars, the seat of what John calls the Jews, the Jewish religious establishment. Jesus did most of his miracles in Galilee, and no doubt the elites in Jerusalem discounted all of these reports. These were the reports of the ignorant and gullible and easily fooled masses in Galilee. And in contrast to what was happening in Galilee, the Bible only records two miracles in Jerusalem. Now, that's true. John chapter 2, verse 23 does talk about the signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem, but he never actually mentions what they were. So whatever miracles that he must have done, well, they must have been of a smaller and less noticed variety. Well, except for these two outstanding miracles. The one is the healing of the lame man, and that's recorded in John 5. And it turns out that the religious establishment found it rather easy to turn that man against Jesus. And and so in consequence, the religious leaders could easily have discounted that miracle man who was healed, had reported Jesus to the Pharisees as a violator of the Sabbath, and he had indicated that Jesus had actually incited him into violating the Sabbath. So, in the minds of the Pharisees, the man who had been an invalid for 38 years and who was healed, well, that miracle could be discounted. But now in John chapter 9, Jesus does his second miracle in Jerusalem, and he heals a man born blind. And furthermore, some people in Jerusalem have brought this man over to the Pharisees and they've said, well, look, here's the man. He was born blind and Jesus healed him. And so it becomes harder now to discount the miracles in Galilee because here we are with a bonafide miracle right inside Jerusalem. And so this miracle presents the Pharisees with a threat. If they admit that Jesus did this miracle, well, they'd have some explaining to do. I mean, they'd have to explain why they oppose him. Why are they threatening to kill him? Doesn't it seem that God is with him? And if that's so, what's your response? Now, Jesus had violated their oral tradition and they hated him for that. And Jesus had also made the point that their oral traditions weren't explaining the law, rather they were obscuring the law. And so Jesus was a threat to their authority. And furthermore, he had claimed to have come directly from God's presence. And so, well, the Pharisees needed to discredit him. If he claims to have come directly from God and he can do miracles, well, clearly, you know, he can do what they can't. And in the end, they're afraid people are going to follow him. And so there's a program underfoot. Do away with him and discredit him. But now here come a group of people. And they produce a blind man whom Jesus has healed. So let's pick up the action now in John 19, verses 18 to 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now please, as I've said before, please bear in mind when John uses the phrase, the Jews, he means the Jewish religious establishment. And now that the regular people from Jerusalem have brought this man to the Jews, they must discredit this account. Their their authority depends on showing Jesus to be an imposter. And so they set out to look for a weakness in the story. Well, how do they do that? Well, first, is it actually true that this man was blind from birth? Are you sure about that? That's why the parents of this man are brought in. And the parents do confirm it. Yep, this is our son. And yes, he was born blind and he now sees. That's undeniable. And so it's going to be very difficult to deny a miracle. But as in the case of the invalid who was healed, there might yet be a way forward. They're going to concentrate on that.
0: Heidi wrote in to say, I discovered your program last summer. And since then, well, I've learned so much from the expository teaching of the Bible. Well, thanks, Heidi. You know, it's hearing the stories of friends like you that assures us that the Bible teaching program is making a difference. If you believe in the importance of sharing the word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month, or consider becoming a monthly partner. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program is heard in your community and right across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become a monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit Bible. The Jews
1: are the religious establishment. Well, they now focus on the second possible area of weakness in the story. How does it come about that he now sees? That is, are you positive that it was Jesus who healed him? Perhaps it was God who did it, and Jesus is now taking credit for it. So they ask the parents for the details. I mean, perhaps there's some inconsistency that can be found, and as soon as they find it, well, they're going to be all over that. At this point, the parents show weakness. We don't have any idea as to how he sees it. See, they're afraid of the Pharisees, and they want none of this conversation. You know, if that meant that they're going to leave their son in the lurch to these powerful men, well, so be it. They're going to save their own skin. They don't know how he got healed. That's what they say. Now, that most likely is a lie. Saying they have absolutely no idea can't be right. But John, who records this event, tells us their motivation. They're terrified. I mean, why? The Jews had by then already made a ruling. If anyone openly communicates a belief that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, they're going to put him out of the synagogue. And so, what does that mean? Well, in order to understand that, let's review what's a synagogue. Let's start by making a distinction between the temple and the synagogues. You know, when I led a group in Israel, I often find that Christians are confused about this very thing. I remember visiting a recreation of a synagogue in Nazareth, and someone asked me, where did they offer the sacrifices here? So, let's understand. The only place where sacrifices were ever done in Israel was in the temple, never a synagogue. The temple, and there was only one temple, it was the place of the major festivals in Israel, and it was the place where sacrifices were offered. That's why Jesus' death on a cross is the fulfillment of the temple, not of the synagogue. The synagogues are something different. You know, synagogues were, and there were many of them, they were smaller local meeting places, and they were given to the instruction of the Old Testament. But they also became the focal point of Jewish life. They became places of gathering, places where local decisions were made, and they were a place of belonging. And so if you were expelled from the synagogue, well, essentially, you are expelled from your community. You have no community. Your former friends would shun you, and suddenly and awfully, you'd be left alone in the world. And so when the religious teachers asked the parents of the man born blind how he was healed, well, they knew what Jesus had done, but they froze. If they answered wrongly, it could destroy their lives and root them out of their community. See, synagogue expulsion was not something the blind man's parents wanted to fool around with. And so they admitted that their son was healed, but then they wanted out of the discussion. If you have any questions, ask him. He's an adult. So let's continue on with the storyline. I'm reading now John 9, 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So notice now how the pressure is being ratcheted up. Having succeeded in intimidating the man's parents, it's time now to do the same thing to this man. But in an attempt to subvert the evidence of the miracle, the religious teachers overplay their hand. We know, they say, that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Well, how do they know that? How do they know that? That is, what is the sin they can identify with him? And do they mean he's a greater sinner than they are, or that his sin, whatever it is, is so great that he has to be thoroughly rejected? And so the statement in itself, well, it's unclear. Whatever they mean by calling him a sinner, well, it's only meant to slander him. And so they're now inviting the man born blind to join them. Slander Jesus, they say. Even we dare you not to, because you'll see the consequences if you don't. And furthermore, when they say we know, that is, that we know that he's a sinner, they seem to be implying that everyone who's a religious teacher has come to the same opinion trying to leave the impression that there are no cracks at all in their ranks. Every religious teacher is convinced as the next one that this man, Jesus, is a notorious sinner. Well, you're going to remember that just a few days earlier, the Pharisees had tried to get the temple guard to arrest Jesus. And we had seen then that the temple guard, well, they were made up of theologically trained and informed people. And we also noticed that those guards refused to arrest Jesus. They said no one ever spoke the way he did. Well, the temple guard obviously didn't think he was a great sinner, so the we can't include them. And then we noticed that a man named Nicodemus, who is one of the Pharisees, had called for his colleagues to give Jesus a fair hearing. And then just a few verses before this grand statement that, that we, that is, all the religious leaders know that he's a sinner. Well, we'll listen to what's just been said a brief time before, John 9, 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was what? A division among them. So in truth, there is no all of us agree. It's not true. It's an exaggeration at best. And at worst, it's an attempt to deceive and it's surely an attempt to intimidate. So after making this overstatement that we, the theologians, have all come to a a universal decision that this man is a sinner, they then say to the man born blind, give glory to God. Now, what in the world can that mean? Well, it must mean that they're asking the man born blind to ascribe this miracle to God and in the process to deny that Jesus had anything to do with it. And that leads us to a question, doesn't it? How can it glorify God when we deny the truth? How can it glorify God when we slander someone? How can it glorify God when we threaten to throw someone out of church if they simply tell the truth about what they've seen? I mean, how does one lie about what happened and then claim that the lie was to God's glory? How's that possible? Proverbs 14, verse 5 says, A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. Indeed, the ninth commandment says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor." Again, we have to ask, how can it be glorifying to God to say that Jesus had nothing to do with the healing since to do so would be to break one of the Ten Commandments? So I hope you see why the parents of this man, I mean, they simply wanted out of this debate. There's no upside to this. And by the way, this is why evil men persecute Jesus. They know that there are all sorts of people who won't insist on the truth. They just don't want trouble. That's also why so many evil people can persecute the followers of Jesus. There are lots of ordinary people, just don't let me get involved with this. They deliberately close their eyes when evil is happening right in front of them. Isn't it better to just mind your own business and stay out of this? So the Pharisees know this. That's what they're counting on. And so they go after the man born blind. In essence, they're asking him, do you want trouble? Because if you do, we can serve it up for you. So all that remains now is to see what the man born blind actually does. Will he break God's law and save himself from the Pharisees, or will he anger the Pharisees and risk excommunication? It's fascinating when religious leaders lie, don't you think? Normally what's at stake in those moments is the danger that they perceive. They don't want to lose power. But Jesus has put them in a bind. He has accused them of being, well, way back in chapter 8, he accused them of not having God as their father. Rather, he said, you are of your father, the devil. So here's Jesus. He's condemning the evil of the Pharisees. And at the same time, he's doing outstanding miracles that are hard to deny. That's why they persecute him. So let's go to verse 25. So the man born blind is answering. He says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So notice the man born blind. I know I can't answer all your religious debates, he says, but you will not get me to lie. It is that man Jesus who made me see, and all your subtle arguments will never erase that one thing. So that's why Jesus is being persecuted even to this day. And that's why his followers are also persecuted. His followers will never deny what Jesus has done. He's done something that no other man in all of human history can do. He stands alone among the human family as above every other one. And for this reason, you'll never be done with him. He will continue to offer healing to those who seek him he will continue to condemn those who trade in the world's lies he's never going to go away he will continue to be there and be a burr in the saddle of evil men so you can either acknowledge him as lord and god or you can curse him and hope that he goes away but he just won't jesus will always be here
0: John, persecution is a tough issue, and you know, we always pray for those people that are being persecuted, but it really is part of our future as God's people.
1: Yeah, it sure is. Uh, ben, two questions there, I see, I hear, and, and the first one is, uh, should we be praying for the persecuted? And yes, we should pray that God will give them strength and sustain them, um, and uh, we should also be praying for the end of persecution for all sorts of reasons. But the second is that persecution will come our way. And one of the reasons is because because God has ordained it should be so. Uh, We are called upon to identify fully with Jesus, both in his death and in his resurrection. So, uh, if we are to reign with him, we will also need to die with him. And so, this is the calling of every single believer. I think it becomes hopeful when we remember that when we are being persecuted, that we are being called upon to fully identify with Jesus. So, we should think it
0: an honor to be treated
1: as Jesus was
0: treated. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Crossroad, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you heard Dr. John's latest series in the book of the Psalms, Finding Pleasure in God? Well, if you haven't, or if you'd like to hear it again, or you want to send it to a friend, we want to send Finding Pleasure in God on CD as our gift to you. We also want to include Dr. John's series on Psalm 42, To the King, accompanied by a limited edition illustration of Psalm 42 on a magnet for your kitchen, your office, or shop, all reminding you of God's faithfulness. These three ministry resources, all free as our gift, Finding Pleasure with God, To the King, and the limited edition Psalm 42 illustration on a magnet. To ask for your free gifts this month, or to offer a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.